Bibles tonight, if you would please, to the book of Nehemiah chapter 9. If you please turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. We're winding down our study in the book of Nehemiah. I have about three more messages to preach, and then we'll be ready to move on to something else. But we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 9 this evening. Several years ago, uh, Bert Bacharach wrote a song that began, What the world needs now is love, sweet love. And that's surely a beautiful sentiment, isn't it? But the problem is the world really doesn't know much about love, and they don't know actually to look for love. And love would be a wonderful thing if we could actually understand what it is. Another songwriter wrote, looking for love in all of the wrong places. And that is probably a biblically accurate statement. People look for love in all the wrong places. Well, love is is certainly... Something that's in short supply. The world's not really looking for love and looking, as I said, in the wrong places. But what the world really needs now, and if Burt Bacharach could write that song again, perhaps he could tell us what the world really needs now. What we really need is an outpouring of God's goodness and his mercy. But the world is never going to see such an outpouring until we decide that we're going to repent of our sins, until we turn back to the Lord and do what God wants us to do. Now, last week I spoke on the subject, how to rebuild a nation. And one of the keys to revival is to have sorrow over sin. One of the ways that we're going to rebuild our nation, if we ever do, will be when we come to the place that we have sorrow over sin. And one of the wonderful things about the story of Nehemiah is that Israel came to that realization. The walls of Judah, of Jerusalem, I should say, were broken down because of sin. The temple was destroyed because of sin. The people were taken captive into Babylon because of sin. But we find here in the book of Nehemiah that the people are ready to confess those sins and to get right with God. The few weeks after the rebuilding of the walls, when Nehemiah had completed those, when the people had finished with it, that was a time of great spiritual blessings for Israel. Now that the walls were built, the people could go back to worshiping God. They could participate in all the the feasts and the holy days that they used to practice. And they couldn't do that when the walls were broken down because they didn't have the protection of the city. But now God has allowed them to rebuild the walls and Israel has decided to go back and to worship God and God alone. And whenever a people decide that they're going to worship God and God alone, God promises to be a wall of protection for us. He will be our fortress. Well, in this ninth chapter of Nehemiah, God, Jehovah God, is the subject matter. And here we find recognition of who God is, who the real God is, and what God has done for his people. Also here in Nehemiah chapter 9, we find the recognition of sin. We find the people confessing their sins. But we also see a time of celebration for God's people. And the people celebrated because of God's long-suffering towards them. Because all the times that they turned their back on the Lord, yet he was always ready to forgive and to take his people back. Now this evening, I'd like to speak on the subject, Celebrate God. And I'd like to use this chapter as a way of showing us how that we need to celebrate God just as Israel did. And we are to celebrate God for all that he does for us. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is a long chapter. We're not going to read it all. I'm just going to read just a few verses to get us started. Then we'll talk about some things that are in this chapter. But Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning with verse number 1. It says, Now in the twenty and fourth day of this month, The children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. 
and the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day. And another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Then stood up upon the stairs of the Levites, Jeshua and Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani, and cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God. You know, I, I'm in very much in favor of people naming their children with Bible names. But if you use those, don't come around here. Don't have your babies dedicated here, please. Verse number 5. Then the Levites, Jeshua and Cadmiel, Bani, here we go again, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shebaniah, and Pethathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the many blessings that you've given us, and we thank you, Lord, for the great God that you are. And tonight, we do want to learn how to celebrate you, and just thank you so much for all that you've done. Bless in this message tonight, and we'll give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I want you to notice a very important part of this celebration. In verse number 2, it says, Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. There's one thing that you really can't miss as you read the Old Testament. It's impossible for you to miss this, and that is that God has a chosen people. Israel was called out specifically to be God's people. They were chosen out from all the nations of the world, and God's divine favor was showered down upon this one particular nation. And when Israel ran into trouble was when they failed in their separation. When they began to mix and mingle with the peoples of the world, when they began to intermarry with heathens, that's when trouble started. When they failed to to drive out the, the people from the land of Canaan, when they didn't drive out the ones that God said to drive out from the promised land, then possessing that land became one of struggle and one of conflict, and Israel was never totally freed throughout their history of that conflict, simply because they didn't do what God said. Now, this is the very same thing that we find in the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of struggle and one of conflict. And folks, we heap more troubles upon ourselves when we fail to separate ourselves from this godless world. When Christian people began to look and to talk and to act like those of the world, unregenerate people, we simply cannot expect that God's blessings are going to be upon us. Recently, it was brought to my attention that sometimes our church doesn't look very much like we're separated from the world. Now, as you know, I I very strongly resist making all kinds of rules and regulations that people have to keep, and so are are rules that people keep. And and sometimes, uh, since I don't speak about that very often, you get the idea that we don't really believe that Christians ought to be separated from the world. One of the things that I do is I I like to teach things like we've had on Sunday mornings with John chapter 15, where Jesus talks about the fruit that a Christian's supposed to bear. And I pointed out as I was preaching about that, that the fruit of a Christian is to have the character of Jesus Christ reproduced in them. 
And I hope by using those kinds of symbols, just like Jesus used, that people would come to the conclusion, conclusion that, yes, we are to be a separated people. We're to have the character of Jesus. But unfortunately, sometimes people don't get the symbols. And you have to speak a little bit more directly. So let me speak a little bit more directly. Separation, folks, from the world involves getting rid of worldly lifestyles. That means that sometimes that you have to turn away from the fashion of the world. It means that you have to look at the way you dress and the way that you act and see if that's modest and God-honoring. And it also means that there's some places that Christians ought not to go. The places that the world goes, you ought to start and stay away from those things. As you know, I don't preach against going to movies, but I certainly do believe that you ought to be highly selective about what you see. I don't mention maybe particular reading materials that you might have. I don't talk very much about what you may see on the Internet. But I believe that if God has saved you, he's put it into your mind, he's put it into your heart, a good sense of knowing what you ought to see and what you ought not to see and the kinds of things that you ought to envision. And quite frankly, you need to stay away from some of the stuff that you've been looking at. I don't often preach on dress, but I think that Christians do learn very quickly what is a godly way to dress, what's God-honoring, what's not. But I'm afraid that there's some folks who have resisted what they know is right. And so consequently, you don't dress the way that you should. And so because of the hardness of your heart, you don't really feel any shame over what you wear. Well, as we read the scriptures here, we saw that these people did have some shame in their hearts over the sin that they had committed. And one of the things that they did here in these scriptures is they dressed in sackcloths. They came to this meeting dressed in sackcloths. And what sackcloths actually means is, is clothes of mourning. And the sackcloths relayed what they actually had in their heart. What you wear many times reflects what you have in your heart. And you really ought to think about that sometimes when you get dressed, that what you wear says something about who you are and what you believe. Well, Israel experienced shame over their sin, and so they decided they were going to do something different. And they decided that they would separate themselves. And when God's people separate themselves, that's when they're ready to experience God's greatest blessings. And they begin to celebrate as they bask in God's blessings. Now, this evening in the message, I want to show you three areas of celebration. These people were very excited about what God had done for them, and so they celebrated God in some different ways. So they worshiped God. So let me point out some ways to you tonight to celebrate God. I want you to notice, first of all, to celebrate the greatness of God. Now, there's a a very peculiar thing that we see in verse number three that really doesn't sound much at all like a modern-day church service. These people stood up for the reading of God's word. And the Bible says that for one-fourth part of the day, that means the daylight hours, one-fourth part of the day, three hours, they stood up and listened to the reading and the preaching of God's word. And then when they were finished with those three hours, they spent another three hours in prayer and speaking to God and repenting of sins and thanking God for what he'd done for them. But you know, that's not the reaction of most churchgoers today, is it? A preacher gets up, if he regularly preaches more than 45 minutes, he's going to be looking for a new job. And when the song leader gets up, he leads the people in the song, take time to be holy. And people really don't have time to be holy. And, and so consequently, God's people don't come back to him. Nobody really wants to be holy. 
And so today in our churches, instead of hearing sermons, we hear sermonettes, little bitty snippets of the Word of God, and if it's read even at all. And since that's the way that it is, there's really no holiness among God's people. There's really no revival with God's people. I remember when I was a child that we used to have two-week revivals. And there was always one week of prayer meetings before we had those two weeks of revival. And we did that sometimes three times a year. Two times, sometimes three times a year. So that meant at least six to nine weeks out of every year was set aside for people to get right with God, get their hearts right with Him, repent of their sins, and get back on fire for the Lord. You don't see much of that today. It hardly ever happens anymore. I mean, to try to get people out for a special service is very difficult. We can't hardly get people out for the regular service, much less a special service. But here we see these people were determined to celebrate God, and they started out by acknowledging God's greatness. Now, I want you to notice first that they celebrate His excellent name. They begin thinking about the name of their God. And they said in verse number 5, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and bless be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. I want you to notice in your Bible there that the word Lord is in all caps. And in the King James Version, that designation of all caps means that this is actually the word Jehovah. Now, when the Israelites spoke about God, they would never say the word Jehovah. Jehovah was too holy a name for them to speak. And so they substituted another word that meant Lord. And the word that they substituted was the word Adonai. And so when you're reading in the Bible and you see that a difference in the way that Lord is spelled, whether it's in all caps or whether it's in lowercase, it's the difference between the words Jehovah and Adonai. So the King James translators put Lord in all caps to show us that the designation here for God's name is Jehovah. Now, there are some people who have complained about that, and they say that this is confusing. It really doesn't distinguish properly the name of Jehovah, and perhaps we ought to change it and put Jehovah there. But I think, really, it does exactly the opposite. I think most definitely that it distinguishes the right name for God because your, your eyes are drawn immediately to that. This is in all caps. This must mean something. But however that you look at it, when you think of the word Jehovah, Lord, Jehovah Lord, that is an excellent name. Now, the simplest translation of Jehovah is the explanation we find that God gave Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And there the word of God says, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and they shall say unto them, and I shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. He said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And of course, that's who God is. God is the great I am. Our God has no beginning and no end. He is in the eternal present. And Jesus used those very same words about himself in John chapter 8. There Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And since Jesus is the great I am, the Bible tells us in the book of Philippians, Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Peter said in the book of Acts, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so we celebrate the name of Jehovah God because it's an excellent name. 
Then next we see that we are to celebrate his exclusive nature. Verse 6 says, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Now Moses said in Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. I don't have time to read this passage now, but in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 through 9, what you read there is called the Shema. And the Shema is a Jewish confession of faith. And what it says is that there is one God. And by rabbinical law, they were always supposed to read that portion of Scripture every morning and every evening. And so they were acknowledging there is one God. And you and I as Christians, we ought to celebrate the one God, Jehovah God, Jesus Christ. The Bible says he's the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to heaven except through Christ. Now, I know today it's not politically correct for us to say that. Our leaders will get up, leaders of our country, and they'll make overtures to all sorts of gods as they acknowledge the the many different faiths that we have in our country. But I'll tell you this, as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you ever are called upon to stand and rise and say a public prayer, you make sure that you end that prayer in the name of Jesus Christ so that people know the exact God that you're speaking to. There's only one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we ought to celebrate the one true God. Thirdly, celebrate his expansive creation. They said in verse number 6, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. You know there's one thing that no Christian ought ever to do? No Christian ought ever to give up on the belief that God, through a miraculous work of creation, in six days created the heavens and the earth. A few weeks ago, there was an article in the paper about a scientist, or about scientists who say that they are Christians, scientists who say that they believe in God, and yet they, they hold on to the so-called theory of evolution. Friends, evolution is not Christian. Evolution is totally incompatible with Christianity. Evolution, I believe, is a diabolical scheme to deny the greatness of God. It denies the fall of man. It denies the entrance of sin into the universe. And you'll notice this, that people who call themselves Christians and scientists who say, yes, we believe in God and we're also Christians, did you know that they also deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? They deny the miracles that that Jesus performed They deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's not Christian. There's no such thing as alternate Christianity. God created it all. And whenever Christians try to insert into the process something like theistic evolution or the gap theory and try to try to explain how that we can fit evolution into the Word of God, it won't work. Now, the ancient Jews knew far more about this, about God creating the world, than many so-called intellectuals that we find today. Celebrate because God created the world and he's in charge. But let's go on because they celebrate the greatness of God. And we also notice in this worship service that they celebrate the goodness of God. I encourage you to read the rest of this ninth chapter because I only have time to look at some of the highlights tonight, but read this entire chapter, and you'll find out that what they do here is rehearse the history of Israel. And as they look over the past history of Israel, they find out that God has always been good to them. Even when they sinned against them, when they turned their backs on God, God was still good to them. 
Now, I like the first reason, the very first reason to celebrate the goodness of God that they give us here. The first reason is celebrate God because he chose us. Now, look at verse number seven. Thou art the Lord, the God who didst choose Abraham. You know, you can't miss it when you read the Bible. God makes distinctions. God chooses. Why was Abraham chosen? You know, Paul says something very instructive about this in Uh, He's he's speaking about Abraham's justification. And in Romans chapter 4, he says, Cometh this blessedness then upon the uncircumcision only, or the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Now, the argument that Paul's actually trying to make here is that both Jews and Gentiles will be saved. But it's insightful for us to, to look at this and see how that God was dealing with Abraham before he brought him to circumcision. God spoke to Abraham way back when he was living in a heathen land. Abraham knew nothing at all about God. The Bible doesn't say that Abraham was seeking God. In fact, Abraham came from a family of idol worshipers. But Abraham was God's chosen man. And it couldn't be that God just chose him to be the father of the faithful and to be the progenitor of the Jews because Abraham could not have been that if God had not also chosen him to his own justification. He had to be chosen from God in that way to be the father of the faithful. You see, God selects. God chooses. Now, that's a doctrine that's despised by many Baptist people today. I mean, the very same Baptists who find that their heritage is rooted and grounded in the doctrines of grace. But yet it's still true. From cover to cover in God's word, we find it. People are chosen. The Jews knew that they were chosen. And they were blessed of all people because God picked them exclusively from all the nations of the world. I don't know why God chooses. If you ask me, I simply don't know, other than to say what God says himself, and that is he chooses according to the pleasure of his will. I just thank God that he chose me. I know that I'm chosen because there's no other way that I would ever have put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you chosen by God? If you believe in Jesus Christ, you've been chosen by God. Not chosen that you would believe, but chosen in order that you might believe. So celebrate God for choosing, because if he didn't, all men would live with no hope. All men would live and die and go to hell. Now notice next that we celebrate God because he changes us. Verse number 7 says again, Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abraham, and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gavest him the name of Abraham. God changed Abram's name to Abraham. And that was a very significant change. We notice the change in Genesis 17, verse 5, where the Bible tells about it. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations I have made thee. Now, this was when God made his covenant with Abraham. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to multiply your children. Your, your, Your seed will be like the sands of the sea and like the stars of the sky. And at the same time, he told Abraham, I'm going to give you a country. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. And God changed his name. Now, Abram means high father. And Abraham means numerous offspring or father of numerous offspring. In many cultures, when a significant thing happens in a person's life, many times there is a name change. 
Now, Abraham was saved many years before this, but the purpose of God for Abraham was signified by the name change. Now, this is what happens when God saves us. He changes us. He makes us something different than we were before. You see, God doesn't reform you. He he doesn't take what you are and clean you up a little bit and spit polish you some so you look a little bit better. God doesn't reform you. God changes you. God makes you a completely new creature in his sight. Now, we're a new creation in Christ, the Bible says. We've been born again. So that Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And listen to this part. And I will write upon him my new name. So the Bible says that there is a new name that's coming for us in glory. I don't know what my name's going to be. I have no idea what that name will be. I'm going to find out someday what the name is and what that name means. But for right now, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to celebrate because God changed me. And he put me in a position where he can give me that new name. And he tells me he's going to take me to heaven. And he's going to identify me with that special name that he's going to give. And I celebrate God because he changed me. The greatest change that ever comes over a person is what we read right in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes and he says, Among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in his mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Is that not a change? From death to life, spiritual death to spiritual life, from sin to salvation, that's a great change. The Bible says that once I was dead in sins, but now through Jesus Christ I am alive in him. One author said it this way. He said the name change calls attention, listen, to the unilateral way in which God dealt with Abraham, a point made repeatedly throughout this section. You know what that says, folks? God does it all. All of God's decisions are unilateral. Thank him, because he took it upon himself to bring us to him. But there's another reason to celebrate his goodness. Also celebrate because he chastens us. Now, again, I encourage you to read the rest of this chapter because the people acknowledge the goodness of God and how that... Although they were sinners against God, they turned their backs on him. God was still good. Repeatedly they sinned, and still God blessed them. But when they did, God brought chastisement. Now, have you ever thought about this? Why would you praise God for chastisement? Well, simply because through chastisement, God lets you know that you're his child. Hebrews says, and we read this, uh, not this particular verse, but the verses surrounding it this morning... But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You see, God doesn't, doesn't bother dealing with people who aren't his children. And so if you sin with impunity, don't celebrate that. If you sin with impunity, then you cower with fear because you've been cursed by God. There's no child of God who sins who doesn't suffer chastisement. And so the Jews praised God because although they repeatedly sinned against him, God still loved them and showed them that they were his children by calling them back through chastisement. So why should we praise God for chastisement? 
Because that lets us know that we're his children, and that brings us back into God's place of blessing. Now, once again, Hebrews says, we read this morning, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Here's what God wants for you. God wants to reward you in heaven. And if you're his child, God wants to bring you back to the place where you can be in the center of his blessings. And he does that through chastisement. So celebrate even when God chastises Because God's being good to you when he does. God brings you full assurance of your salvation when you know he proves to you that you're his child because he cares enough to bring you back to the place where he can bless you. Now, there's a lot of things that we can glean from this chapter. We could go on and on tonight. But let me just give you one more thing, one more reason to celebrate God. And number three is to celebrate the grace of God. You know, I I love songs and singing. Back when I used to lead the music, we revamped our services to make them a little bit more upbeat and kind of make the songs flow together. One of the things that I did back then was to change the the 10 o'clock a.m. opening exercises, and we called that the Celebration Assembly. And I just thought it was good for us to start out our day worshiping God, giving praise to God, acknowledging who God is. But one of the things that I found out that there are some people who believe that church is not really the place of worship. My predecessor didn't believe that church was a place to worship. His idea was that we worship God in private. And so it didn't go over very well when I said, let's change the name of the service to the Celebration Assembly. Well, folks, I believe in corporate worship. And I do believe that our songs and our singing, the songs that we sing here are good for us. And and we do worship God when we do that. When we preach God's word, we're right here right now, preaching and listening to God's word. That's a form of worship, and we do that together. Now, one of the things that I like, as I said, about worship is is the singing, and I believe it is meaningful worship. I like songs. I like the expression of songs. There's one southern gospel song that says, Ain't God good to give us so many blessings, undeserving, that's what we are. Undeserving, that's what we are. And yet God has given us grace. Folks, if you can't be happy about God's grace, if you can't celebrate that, you just can't be happy. The Bible is a book about grace. Front to back, cover to cover, it's all about grace, grace, and even more grace. And of course, the word grace itself means that it has to come from God. It comes from God alone. And that's because we're helpless. I mean, we're lost. We're sinful. We're undone. We are are undeserving. God can't find anything good in us. And so he has to give us grace. So celebrate God's grace. Why do we do that? Well, first of all, celebrate because he forgave us. Now, here's a chapter that's about sin after sin. It speaks about rejection after rejection. They rebelled. God forgave. They rebelled again. God forgave again. They talk about being delivered from Egypt. And when they were delivered, what did they do? They went into the wilderness. They began to murmur against God. They were brought into the land of Canaan, and God helped them to conquer the land of Canaan. But what did Israel do? They forsook God, and they began to worship the idols of the heathens. But still, God forgave them. And friends, we've also sinned, haven't we? We've turned our backs on God. I mean, my goodness, if you look at the nation of America tonight, what have we done? We've turned our back on God. I mean, we've kicked God out of government. We've kicked God out of our schools. God even takes a backseat in church today. But you know, it's still true, the promise that God gave in the book of Second Chronicles. He said, 
If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. God just keeps on forgiving. That's the kind of God that he is. He's a God of grace. But as we think about God forgiving, let's not forget about the initial forgiveness that God gave. Let's go back to that. Because it was our sins that put Jesus Christ upon that cross of Calvary. Our sins nailed Jesus to the cross. But what did Jesus say even right while he was hanging on that cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness has been obtained for every person who puts their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we were justly justly do hell, and yet Jesus forgave us. Is that not a reason to celebrate? I think it is. Secondly, celebrate his faithfulness to us. Now, in the last part of verse number 8, the people said that God had performed his works. In other words, God did exactly what he said that he would do. Now, when it talks about that, it's speaking in relation of Abraham. And uh, God told Abraham that the land would be, would be theirs, that he would give this to the Jews. And so the people acknowledged that that promise had come true. God did exactly what he said he would do. I mean, he was faithful. And the people did possess the land. Now, here are a people that are few. They're, they're not a warring people. They're not a fighting people. And yet God took those few numbers of people and he caused the walls of cities to fall down flat. And we remember the story of Gideon, how that God took 300 men and defeated a vastly superior Midianite army. Thousands of them were defeated and put to flight before the people of God. God was faithful to his people. He said, this land is going to be yours. And God made sure that it was. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Sometimes our faith is weak. Sometimes we don't trust God the way that we should. We disobey God. We walk away from him. But no matter how unfaithful that we are to God, God is never unfaithful to us. God always keeps his word. Every single solitary promise of the word of God will come true. As we look at the Bible, it's a book that's full of prophecy. And all the prophecies that God promised that have come true give us evidence that whatever else God promised is yet to come true will, in fact, come true. For instance, God gave us the promise, Jesus gave us the promise that he would return for us. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he said, I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself. The angels said when Jesus ascended, he said, this same Jesus which shall so come in like manner. Now, that's a promise that God gave. And looking at the track record of God, I'd say it's going to come true. It's going to happen because God is always faithful. Now, finally, celebrate God because he never forsakes us. After telling about all their sins and the people are confessing and they're telling God how they turn their backs, I want you to look on at a beautiful verse in this chapter. Let's start reading at verse number 30. Nehemiah 9, verse number 30. Yet many years didst thou forbear them, and testifiedest against them by thy spirit in the prophets. Yet would they not give ear. Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. Now look at verse 31. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, For thou art a gracious 
and merciful God. God never forsakes us. Hebrews says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The psalmist said in Psalm 37, For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever. You know, I think that's one of the greatest promises that we have in the word of God. God never forsakes us. He promises that we are preserved forever. There are some people who say that, you know, once a person gets saved, that it's possible for that person to lose their salvation. Oh, there are so many guarantees in the Word of God. I could go on all night telling you about the promises of God and how He does preserve His people. Back when we studied our statement of faith, I preached seven sermons on the security that we have in Jesus Christ. And I still could not exhaust that subject. God never forsakes His children. God says, I will not forsake you. And if there's no other scripture in the Bible that tells me about it, that one scripture right there is enough. It tells me once I am God's child, I'll always be God's child. So we celebrate him. Why? Because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Read the rest of this chapter when you have time and learn how to celebrate God. There's a lot of good things in here. Celebrate the God that we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the great God that you are and how we do need to celebrate you and just to look at all the wonderful things that you've done for us, the promises that you've given. You've always been faithful and true, just like the, just like the song that's sung. Our Redeemer is faithful and true. And Lord, we just thank you so much for that. We pray, Lord, you might bless in our invitation tonight, draw hearts close to you. May we understand the great God that you really are. May we learn to celebrate you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.